When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. James Campbell blinked the winter drizzle out of his eyes as he walked, all his worldly belongings hefted over his shoulders. His long hair was dripping wet, and his boots sank into the mud kicked up by thousands of feet. He barely noticed the cold or the wet. He'd spent the last four years doing this exact thing, and usually in even worse weather. In all ways but one, there was nothing exceptional about this time. The only difference... The reason why Campbell felt buoyed up, why the whole column had a different mood to it, was that they were going home. Sergeant James Campbell, along with thousands of other Scots, was a waged man of war, a mercenary in service to Christina, Queen of Sweden. During his 28 years, Campbell had seen his fair share of bloodshed. Even before the recruiter arrived in his native Argyle, Campbell had killed men in battle. His first time, the man had been a MacDonald. It had been on a raid, him, his father, and dozens of others of Clan Campbell. The young James had gone armed with an uncle's battered Taj, and a chipped sword loaned from one of his father's friends. He also carried his dirk, the small dagger that had been the only weapon that had truly been his. Now, ten years later, he still carried that dirk, but the hand-me-down sword and shield had long been discarded. Now, Campbell carried a musket of Swedish manufacture. He also carried the burn scars on his cheek from thousands of volleys singeing his skin. His beard didn't grow there anymore, making his facial hair lopsided, but he wore it with pride. It was the mark of a veteran, someone who had stood his ground again and again. For the last few months, Campbell and his comrades had been garrisoning the Baltic stronghold of Stettin, where he served under the command of Colonel Robert Munro. Though he had left Scotland years ago, he kept up with news from his native land. It was impossible not to. During garrison duty, there was only so much to do to entertain yourself, and gossip was one of those things. The port brought regular news from traders and reinforcements, and so it was with concern that the garrison had heard of the crisis between Scotland and its king. News of the riots in Edinburgh and Glasgow in the summer of 1637 had been the talk of the regiment for weeks. When the Privy Council fled the capital, and the tables established their own government, it had led to heated arguments between the men. Who was in the right? Who was in the wrong? If matters came to violence, what side would they choose? And it increasingly looked like it would come to violence. Many Scots had already answered summons home, though they had to choose which summons to follow. Both the king and his Scottish opponents, the Covenanters, had called them back. 
The colonel had already let his officers know his intentions. He would return to Scotland to fight against the tyranny of the king at the first opportunity. Sergeant Campbell had requested to go with him, as had many of his comrades. It was already commonly known that General Leslie, the General Leslie, was back in Scotland. He'd dodged the Danish and English patrols which had searched for him. In fact, that blockade of the Danish Sound was why they'd spent the winter on the Baltic. But the day before, the colonel had called a meeting and announced that their passage was clear. They were going home. And so, on this miserable rainy day, Sergeant Campbell led his men in their march to the port, where they would board a ship to sail home. It is February 1639, and this Sergeant Campbell does not exist. He's a composite character, a fiction, though one based on the real experiences of many thousands of veteran mercenaries who returned from the theatres of the Thirty Years' War. They came home to fight, on one side or the other, in the first serious conflict within the British Isles in almost forty years, the First Bishop's War. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 8, The First Bishop's War. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. Last time, we saw why so many Scots went into military service abroad. There were many reasons. Glory, wealth, honour, and of course the gentle nudging of the Scottish crown. Sometimes this nudging took the form of authorising recruitment drives, and sometimes it took the form of arresting potential recruits and conscripting them wholesale. Thousands of Scots would fight in the Thirty Years' War, in the armies of every side, Many officers would achieve fame, their soldiers would become hardened veterans, and both would get valuable experience of warfare. I left off last week mentioning the name of a very important figure in the coming wars of the Three Kingdoms, Alexander Leslie. So, who the hell is Alexander Leslie? His exact date of birth is unknown, his exact place of birth is debated, and we aren't even certain who his parents were. In fact, we know very little about Leslie's early life. We do know some things, though. He was probably born around 1580, based on his own later, vague account of his age. His father was almost certainly Captain George Leslie, the captain of Blair Castle in Athol, while his mother is debated. Some sources claim that she was George Leslie's first wife, others that it was his second wife. But one thing that is more or less agreed is that Alexander Leslie was born out of wedlock. He was illegitimate, a bastard, and born of quite humble parents. Now, in other parts of Scottish society, this might have had a significant effect on the newborn's future life and career. However, he was born in Athol, in the Highlands, where bastardy had, in the words of Stephen Murdoch and Alexia Grosjean, quote, little bearing on the status of an individual 
and natural sons were fully integrated into the family. We Alexander did not remain in Athol for long. Through the complex ties of friendship and marriage, Leslie was fostered by the Campbells of Glenorchy in Perthshire. Leslie stayed with the Campbells for many years, and as I mentioned last episode, it is quite possible that he cut his teeth on a Galogla expedition to Ireland during the Nine Years' War. Fosterage was an established part of Scottish life, shared by the nobility and the common folk both. It helped forge closer alliances between families, regions, and clans, and the bond between a fosterling and their hosts was incredibly strong and lifelong. In many ways, a fosterling could expect the aid of their adoptive family as much as they would their birth family, up to and including in matters of war. And yes, this is called foreshadowing. However, this episode is not about Leslie, and so I will jump ahead a few decades to 1626. At this point, Leslie had been serving in continental armies for more than 20 years, and was a colonel in the armies of the Swedish king, Gustavus Adolphus, the Lion of the North. In July 1628, Leslie was made the governor of Stralsund, and led a Scottish force to aid the city, which had been under siege by Habsburg forces under Albrecht von Wallenstein. Wallenstein withdrew without issue, and probably not because of Leslie's imminent arrival, but the Swedes, oh, they publicised it as a victory nonetheless, and Leslie's role in the rescue of this Protestant city was noted, including by his fellow Scot, Robert Monroe. When the Swedes became fully involved in the Thirty Years' War in 1630, Leslie joined Gustavus Adolphus in his advance. When arrangements were made for the Marquess of Hamilton to lead another force of English and Scots to aid the Swedes, it was Leslie who was chosen to advise the inexperienced general. After Gustavus Adolphus's death in the Battle of Lützen, Leslie grew increasingly indispensable to the Swedes. He was, as we saw last week, far from the only Scot in Swedish service. By 1635, there were seven other Scots of the rank of general, and this included generals of infantry, cavalry, artillery, and fortification. When Leslie was eventually promoted to field marshal in 1636, two of his three rivals for the position were also Scots. However, while all the Scottish generals had the trust of the Swedes, though not always their affection, Alexander Leslie had the ear of the Lord High Chancellor of Sweden, Axel Uxenschirner. He listened to Leslie's advice on strategy and tactics, and passed it on to his other generals. Leslie advised that newly founded regiments be kept ethnically homogenous. Swedes, Finns, Scots, Germans would all fight alongside their countrymen, whose language they spoke and who often came from the same regions. Leslie returned to Scotland in 1635, publicly for personal reasons, but in reality to emphasise the importance of adequate reinforcement. He returned to the continent, but his colleague, Patrick Riven, did not. Riven had held the position of Lieutenant General in Swedish service, but after being slighted by Field Marshal Gustav Boehner, he returned to Scotland in 1636. He quite openly claimed he was there to gather new recruits, but while he remained officially in Swedish service, he never returned before events in Scotland overtook him. As I've mentioned, as the situation in Scotland deteriorated, 
no one had forgotten about the thousands of highly trained, highly experienced soldiers marching around Central Europe. Likewise, these soldiers had not forgotten about Scotland, and were kept well informed about the events back home. News of Charles's homecoming and his treatment of Parliament reached the diaspora, and both officers in the rank and file were disturbed by what they heard. Leslie was in regular contact with well-connected Scots in Germany, such as Robert Anstruther. Anstruther lived in Hamburg, which was something of a destination for Scottish immigration. Leslie was noted as regularly mixing with his countrymen, seeking and discussing the latest news. As such, as the prayer book riots escalated and the disaffected seized power, many in Swedish service suspected that Leslie would soon choose to return to Scotland. On the 1st of January, 1638, Leslie set sail for England. His final destination would be Scotland, but first he travelled to London to seek an audience with Charles and to spend time in England. Over his two months in England, Leslie did what he could to raise additional English troops to fight for Sweden, as he had promised on his departure. Murdoch and Groschon make the point that we don't know for sure what the field marshal was actually up to during his time in London, other than recruitment. It's possible that this is all he did, but it isn't likely. It's more likely that this was, in effect, a scouting mission. London was a hotbed of Puritanism. If Leslie could identify a number of people who, maybe, possibly disagreed with Charles's religious policies, well, that would be useful information in the event of some kind of war. The side effect of his cover story, if indeed it was a cover story, is that the soldiers he recruited were shipped off to the Baltic, far, far away from the control of Charles, which, in the event of this speculative future war, well, that would be quite convenient. However, Leslie was not yet prepared to let this come to war. After his time in England, Leslie returned north. Here, he negotiated with his fellow Scot and former commander, the Marquis of Hamilton, to try and bring about a peaceful end to the crisis. Hamilton was also trying to win Leslie over. In the event that it came to war, securing the allegiance of the field marshal would be a coup for the king's side. The Covenanters had the exact same idea, and through his kinsman, the Covenanter Earl of Rothers, they won this battle of words. Leslie signed the Covenant, and he returned to Sweden in July. Throughout all of this, he continued his correspondence with Lord High Chancellor Uxenschöner, among others. He explained the causes of this growing unrest to his European allies, as well as sending a copy of the National Covenant, which he had now signed. Leslie's letters and the Covenant were read aloud in the Reichsrat, the Swedish assembly, where they were received positively. Once back in Stockholm, Leslie moved quickly. He knew that one of the first things Charles would do, in the event of a rebellious Scotland, was to blockade the kingdom. He had, after all, a brand new fleet, built with the results of ship money. Yet Leslie was still a commissioned officer, a field marshal no less, in the Swedish army. He couldn't just leave without permission. But this is where having friends in high places came in handy. Chancellor Uxenschöner expedited his release from service, and also agreed to send him home with a leaving present of artillery. However, the Reichsrat was not so quick to agree. 
Leslie was irreplaceable, and he would take with him the cream of the Scottish officer corps. Perhaps more dangerously, allowing Leslie to return home in the knowledge that he intended to fight his king would damage the Anglo-Swedish relationship. Despite these arguments against it, the arguments for it won out. Leslie had served loyally for many years, and deserved to leave if he wished. He was leaving to support the cause of Protestantism against a, supposedly, anti-Protestant king. He was popular, and preventing him from leaving might lead to trouble among his troops. And in the realm of foreign policy, if Charles reconquered Scotland, it would be dangerous for Sweden anyway. He was, after all, related to the Danish king. The Covenanters would be much better allies. The Reichsrat, after debating, agreed to let him go, and authorised the shipment of an additional 2,000 firearms and two more artillery pieces through Scottish merchants present in Stockholm. Leslie departed the Swedish capital on the 22nd of August, and set sail for Scotland. While the Reichsrat had debated, Leslie's fears came true. From June, Hamilton had begun trying to convince the king to order a blockade of Scottish shipping, and now he had succeeded. Eight to ten ships were stationed in the Firth of Forth, the waterway to Edinburgh and Leith, with another three patrolling the coast up to Aberdeen. Charles's allies were asked to search all Scottish-bound ships for armaments and supplies. Christian IV, King of Denmark and Norway, and uncle of Charles, was requested to blockade the Danish Sound and conduct these searches, which he agreed. Covenanter-aligned merchants would have their goods and their vessels seized. Those who aligned with the king would be permitted to pass, and receive royal protection. In this way, Hamilton hoped, Scotland would submit out of economic necessity. By April 1639, an Englishman reported that Scottish ships could be found impounded in every port in England and Wales, and some in Ireland. Christian offered to mediate between Charles and the Covenanters, but his nephew declined. He would handle the rebels personally. The search for contraband was the public reason for the blockade. However, this was a manhunt. Charles and Hamilton knew that Leslie would be coming back, and they knew he had signed the Covenant. Claims that he was only returning to Scotland because of his health were dismissed out of hand by most contemporaries. Capturing other officers and soldiers would be nice, and blocking the transport of munitions was vital to a successful campaign, but Leslie was a significant threat, and if he could be arrested at sea, then so much the better. For all this, though, Leslie got through, hiding on a small trading bark that reached Scotland by the end of the year. Alan McInnes, in his British Revolution, describes the failure to catch Leslie, and Hamilton's earlier failure to win him to the king's side, as, quote, the most culpable charge that can be laid against Hamilton, end quote. Leslie got through, and so did a vast amount of contraband, as well as continental veterans. Charles and Christian exchanged pleasantries, and Charles thanked his cousin for his efforts in bringing peace to his realm. Christian confirmed that he was still searching Scottish-bound ships for contraband in January 1639. However, by February, the Danish Chancellor issued the following order. Quote, At the request of the Queen of Sweden, the King has this time permitted 
that Monroe and Stuart may pass through the sound with their recruits, and equally Colonel Fleetwood with one English regiment, and Colonel Hamilton with two Scottish regiments, and further, thirty lasts of gunpowder, thirty ships' pounds worth of match, and two thousand pairs of pistols. So, that's the point of the blockade completely ruined. Colonel Robert Monroe, Colonel Hamilton, hundreds of veterans, and the weapons to arm them were now able to land in Scotland, their release from Swedish service secured by Leslie. This was the last thing that Charles's wanted to happen. As Murdoch and Grosjean suggest, the presence of the English contingent, therefore making it a British convoy, might have been enough to secure passage. Our composite soldier, Sergeant James Campbell, was part of this convoy. However, the coming war was not going to be fought just by veterans of the Thirty Years' War, and the Covenanters could call upon significant numbers of trained warriors from within Scotland. Archibald Campbell, the 8th Earl of Argyll and Chief of the Campbells, had been resolutely opposed to Charles's religious reforms since before he'd become Earl. After meeting with Charles and refusing to be won over, royalist strategy increasingly bent towards wooing the Campbells' hereditary rivals, the Macdonnell Earls of Antrim. This was despite Argyle doing his best to stay out of the crisis, regardless of his own anti-Episcopalian beliefs. After this, and after his father had died, truly making him Earl of Argyle, the Earl had attended the Glasgow Assembly, and kept his seat after Hamilton attempted to dissolve it. Despite throwing his lot in with the Covenanters, he only signed the Covenant itself in April 1639, after Charles had made clear his support of the Macdonalds. Argyll brought with him one of the most powerful lordships in Scotland. Argyll was tasked with defending the western coast of the kingdom, where his own territories were. Not only were his own levies substantial and experienced in battle, but he brought his allies and vassals, the Macaulays, Lamonts, Malcolms, MacDougalls, Macleans, and Camerons. However, the Covenanters were not the only ones who could call on veterans. Charles issued letters to his subjects serving in foreign armies, ordering them to return and serve him. One of the misconceptions about the First Bishop's War is that the Covenanters were able to call on many more veterans than Charles, and this isn't entirely true. Not only did similar numbers of Englishmen go abroad as mercenaries and subsequently return to fight for the king, but the English did not have a monopoly on loyalty to Charles. Many Scottish veterans, regardless of their political or religious leanings, chose the king over the Covenant. And this was not limited to the rank and file. Four Scottish generals, who had served the Swedes and served alongside Leslie, chose the king. There was Hamilton, of course. There was Patrick Riven, who had been made Muster Master General of Scotland in 1637. There was Major General John Riven, who had sided with his uncle over his father-in-law, Leslie. And Lieutenant General James King, Lieutenant General King was a trusted friend of Leslie, more so than anyone else, but they'd all had to make a choice, and now they found themselves on opposite sides. Hello everyone, I'm Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, starting not with the beginning of the war itself, but instead almost two decades earlier, to try and determine why and how the nations of the world would find themselves in a worldwide conflict just 20 years after the devastation of the First World War. 
You could find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Covenanters had significant advantages. It is clear that many Scots could not bring themselves to fight against their own religion and kingdom, even with their loyalty to their king. Sir Thomas Rowe has appeared in our narrative as an ambassador to the Mughal court. At this time, he was on the continent and reported a vast exodus of Scots travelling to the port of Bremen to be shipped back home. The connections the Covenanter generals had made along the Baltic reaped rewards in the build-up to war, as Hamilton complained that new shipments of weapons and ammunition were arriving from several Baltic ports, despite the blockade and Charles's diplomatic arrangements. As we'll see next episode, the Covenanters' diplomatic strategy was more than a match for Charles. The Baltic was not the only source of allies. The Covenanters called on support, both material and diplomatic, from the Dutch Republic and France. A Dutch press had been set up by the Covenanters before the Bishops' Wars began, and they wasted no time swamping their co-religionists with propaganda. The French king had been sent additional Scottish regiments in 1638, which helped keep the French on their side. Louis sent covert embassies to the Covenanters, including Cardinal Richelieu's Scottish Jesuit almoner, Thomas Chambers. Despite the fact that Chambers was not only a Catholic, but a Jesuit, the tables were not so zealous that they did not see the benefit of keeping him on side. On his return to France, he became almost the unofficial ambassador of the Covenanters in Paris. The Covenanters also had Leslie. Now, I'm aware this episode has focused a lot on Leslie, and I don't want it to sound like a hagiography. This is not a podcast about great man history. Leslie was an extremely talented commander and strategist, but he didn't have a monopoly on these talents. Indeed, he now faced many of his former comrades who were similarly skilled. However, Everyone knew that Leslie was brilliant, and this was an advantage all by itself. Firstly, it was a morale boost for the Covenanter forces. They knew that they would be in good hands. Many of them had served under Leslie before, after all. Secondly, it had the opposite effect for the Royalists, as many of them had also served under Leslie and didn't relish the idea of being his enemy. Thirdly, and this cannot be underestimated, Leslie's prestige and reputation allowed him to tell the Covenanter government what to do. At first he was merely an advisor, but his word was taken as policy by the noble-led Fifth Table. Now, he wasn't some kind of dictator, and he didn't run the show, but his hand can be seen in many of the military preparations which the Tables undertook. With diplomatic skill, Leslie managed to appease the aristocracy, used to raising and commanding their own men in war, and merged them with the modern innovations he'd experienced on the continent. The lairds and nobles were urged to raise their levies as their ancestors had always done, and many were made colonels to command these forces. 
However, every officer below the rank of colonel was appointed by Leslie, and he mostly picked veteran professionals. Leslie could handle the Bluebloods, while confident that the men on the ground would be competently led. This was not his only imported innovation. The Covenanters, at Leslie and others urging, adopted many Swedish methods. Military districts were established, and a quota system instituted for recruitment, divided by shire and borough. Conscription was enforced in each district, led by local gentry organised into committees of war. Every able-bodied man between 16 and 60 was eligible for conscription, with the best being selected for the Covenanting Vanguard. The tables expected that each shire committee of war would produce one regiment of infantry and a troop of cavalry. Positions which required experience and skill, such as artillery gunners and engineers, were reserved for continental veterans, while the muster masters of each shire were likewise experienced in Swedish drill, all the better to give new conscripts the basics of warfare. This drill drew on the latest of the military revolution. I'll quote from McInnes here. The development of rapid-fire musketry, the linear phalanxing of pikemen by musketeers and heavy artillery, and the development of cavalry troops supported by mobile field artillery on the flanks improved the manoeuvrability of battle formations. He continues, The covenanting movement was second only to the Swedish crown in possessing a standing army conscripted for national service and sustained by centralised government. In other words, the Covenanters had a force which made the most of European innovations and continental veterans. The Royalists, who had served in the war, were quite aware of the effectiveness of these reforms. All these factors meant that the Covenanters would recruit an army of 24,000 men by 1640. Of the infantry, which made up the vast bulk of the force, most soldiers wielded either a pike or a musket, with slightly more musketeers than pikemen in the army. Highlanders tended to carry a small arsenal with them, a musket, a sword, a targe, and a dirk. Others carried weapons, pikes, halberds, lochaber axes, and the like. They were led by their chiefs and their families. Lowland levies drew from the Wappenshaws. Some were armed with the latest firearms, others had rusty swords from their father's days. Cavalry was present in the early Covenanter army, but in relatively small numbers. They were there to support the infantry, or to scout. In artillery, the Covenanters had plenty of cannon, and with the veterans from Europe, they knew how to use them. To keep this varied force together, Leslie introduced another continental development. Printed copies of the Articles and Ordinances of War were distributed during 1639. The articles detailed exactly how soldiers were meant to behave towards each other, to the enemy, and to civilians. It also detailed the punishments meted out to violators. Until a unit had read or heard the articles and swore an oath to follow them, they were not made part of the army. Leslie was also concerned to link obedience to authority with religion, and so organised the introduction of not only chaplains, usually ministers from a unit's home region, but also made a Kirk session of elders made up of officers. The army was now a presbytery, its ministers and elders selected by each regiment. It would help maintain discipline and ensure the true faith was upheld. 
Now, you may be wondering, why didn't the Royalists undertake the same military preparations? And this is partly why Leslie's reputation was vital. Even when a mere advisor, his orders, his recommendations, were followed, he could make these preparations despite the resentment and envy of some other Scottish lords. For the Royalists, this was not the case. Patrick Riven, possibly the most able commander that the Royalists had at this point, had requested complete authority over the forces that would face the Covenanters, and had been denied. Instead, he was expected to share his authority with the nobility, because all good wars should be run by committee. This was not the way modern warfare was done, and aware that this was a mistake, Riven declined the position. He'd also been given command of Edinburgh Castle, the foremost defensive stronghold in Scotland, in February 1639. Riven was not pleased by what he saw, and again, he refused to take up the position. To put it simply, the fortifications of England and Scotland were woefully out of date compared to Ireland and the continent. If you took a Dutch siege engineer and sat him in front of a Scottish castle, he'd probably be perplexed. The military revolution had swept across the continent, and with it brought incredible advancements in siege warfare, in both attack and defence. Advancements like the Trace Italienne, with its star-shaped bastions, earthen ditches, low thick walls, were all designed for the expected use of gunpowder artillery by besiegers and besieged. This military revolution appeared to have passed Britain by, at least in the eyes of our fictional engineer, though that was not quite the case. Some elements of the Trace Italienne had found their way into Scotland. For example, during the rough wooing of the 1540s, the invading English had constructed six bastion-style fortresses in the south of England. During the regency of Mary de Guise, both Edinburgh and Stirling Castle gained extensive artillery works, specifically earthen-angled bastions, to deflect and absorb cannon shot. Both Stirling and Edinburgh castles gained these bastion defences at their entrances, and the port of Leith was fortified in the new style. However, this was all almost a hundred years ago, and these innovations did not last long. After the Treaty of Edinburgh in 1560, the English-built forts were demolished. Other Trace Italian fortifications were not built due to their significant cost. The new additions to Edinburgh and Stirling castles, the two chief strongholds of the kingdom, were not maintained, and they fell into disrepair. However, this is not at all to say that Scottish castles had become an irrelevance with the arrival of cannon. During the rough wooing, the English attacked Edinburgh. While the city itself was burnt and looted, the castle stood strong. The English commanders were advised not to waste the ammunition trying to bombard the stronghold into submission. During the Marian Civil War, as supporters of Mary, Queen of Scots, fought supporters of her son, James VI, the castle withstood the Lang Siege for two years. Anyone who has seen Edinburgh Castle, and especially if they have arrived into the city by train, will understand why. Let me paint a picture. 350 million years ago, give or take a few million, prehistoric Edinburgh was a volcano. At some point, this volcano became extinct, and in the intervening years, Scotland migrated away from the equator where it had previously sat. Fire was supplanted by ice, 
as vast glacial sheets carved their way across the landscape. Again, over millions of years, the glaciers eroded away the outer slopes of the volcano, which were softer sedimentary rock. When the volcano had died, its inner pipes had solidified into rock called dolerite, which was much harder for the glaciers to handle. Instead of slowly grinding the stone away, the ice went around and above it. Eventually, the glaciers disappeared, and what is now Edinburgh was left with three volcanic plugs dominating the landscape, complete with gentle slopes of rock which had been protected from the attentions of the glaciers. These three plugs still dominate the skyline of Edinburgh. There's Carlton Hill, complete with its monuments visible against the sky. There's Arthur's Seat, a vast monolith of stone which sits in Holyrood Park. And there's Castle Rock. No prizes for guessing what's on top of that one. If you're taking the train to Edinburgh Waverley Station, the tracks pass under the shadow of the castle. If you look out the window, as I've done many times, all you can see is a sheer rock face rising hundreds of feet into the sky. At the top sits Edinburgh Castle, which naturally has commanding views of the entire city. The one way to easily reach the castle gates is along the Royal Mile. Nowadays, the greatest danger you'll face on this slope are all the tourist traps, but for besieging armies, they faced an onslaught of arrows, cannon, and musket fire. However, Edinburgh Castle has its flaws. It was not invincible. Against sufficient firepower, the castle could be reduced, as had been the case during the Lang Siege. It had required 27 English cannons surrounding the fortress on all sides and bombarding it with 3,000 shots over 12 days, but this did cause the collapse of several key parts of the fortress and helped bring about its surrender. The geology of the castle, its greatest strength, its greatest defence, also brought with it a peculiar weakness in the age of artillery. The stone which makes up Castle Hill, Dolorite, is slightly porous. This meant that one of the castle's two wells, the forewell, which was safely within the main walls, couldn't hold much water before it drained away. This problem existed long before the arrival of artillery, but the use of the castle's cannons, upwards of 40 pieces during the Lang Siege, only made this worse. Every time the batteries fired at besiegers, the vibrations opened up slight cracks in the dolerite, letting even more water out. By the end of that siege, the forewell had run completely dry, as well as being blocked by falling masonry. The castle's other well, St Margaret's, sat outside the main walls near the bottom of the hill. Water was lifted by pulleys to the summit, though its location made it vulnerable to attackers. In the Lang Siege, it was poisoned, making it unusable by the garrison. Despite this, Edinburgh Castle was still a serious obstacle to besiegers. Even without the latest in modern defences, it was incredibly difficult to take. Contemporaries who knew all about the latest innovations praised it nonetheless. Henry, Duke de Rohan, on a visit in 1600, wrote about it being, quote, so inaccessible on every side that its natural position renders it more impregnable than if strengthened by all the arts of modern engineering, from which, be it said, it has profited nothing, end quote. Eighteen years later, one John Taylor praised it above all the fortifications he'd seen in Europe, with all of their Tres Italien features. Quote, 
I have seen many straits and fortresses in Germany, the Netherlands, Spain, and England, but they must all give place to this unconquered castle. Edinburgh Castle remained the paramount fortification of Scotland, though its sister castle in Stirling received similar compliments from Taylor, who said it was only slightly inferior to Edinburgh. Stirling Castle likewise sits on a geological formation, not a volcanic plug, but instead an intrusive crag, the Stirling Sill. I'm a historian, not a geologist, to the horror of my childhood self, who was obsessed with volcanoes, so I won't go into any more detail other than to say the castle is surrounded on three sides by steep cliffs. Stirling Castle's status as the second castle of Scotland comes partly from that geological advantage, and partly due to its location. Before bridges spanned the Firth of Forth, any army attempting to travel north from Edinburgh had to pass by Stirling. If you think about a map of Scotland, the Firth of Forth is the large inlet that almost decapitates the northern part of Scotland. Edinburgh is near the southern coast of the Firth, and far to the west, the Firth of Forth narrows and becomes the River Forth. The Forth is wide and largely impassable until you reach Stirling Castle. It's likewise very difficult to take, and any army that did not secure the castle faced the danger of its garrison sallying forth to harass their rear. This defensive belt across the neck of Scotland, which guarded the north of the kingdom, was completed by Dumbarton Castle, sitting on its own volcanic plug on the Firth of Clyde, on the west coast. Dumbarton does appear to have been maintained by the Privy Council, though it surrendered fairly quickly when the Covenanters came a-calling. Scotland is, however, a kingdom of castles, and Edinburgh and Stirling don't have a monopoly on spectacular fortifications. For example, Donotta Castle, in my neck of the woods, is an incredible fortress and will play its own important role in the narrative. However, while some of these castles remained the primary residences of the Scottish nobility, most noble seats were instead fortified tower houses. They would not and could not resist anything like a massed army, and they weren't intended to. Instead, they were meant to protect Scottish nobility, whether laird, lord, or highland chief, from each other. Any force larger than a raiding party, especially if it had artillery, could expect to overwhelm your average tower house with little difficulty. This is the military landscape of Scotland as the war approaches. We'll look at the fortifications of the other two kingdoms when they come up in our narrative, just as we will with their armies. For now, Riven examined Edinburgh Castle and decided that it was too poorly prepared for a siege. There was not enough food, and there was certainly not enough water. So he refused, and went instead to Newcastle in England. He was right to refuse. On the 21st of March, Leslie marched up the Royal Mile with his retinue, and demanded the surrender of Edinburgh Castle. In lieu of Riven, a man named Archibald Haldane was in command as its constable. Haldane refused to surrender the stronghold. Leslie appeared to accept his decision and went to leave, but one of his retinue quickly attached a petard, a small bomb, to the outer gates. It detonated. The gates were destroyed and Colonel Munro, recently arrived courtesy of the Danish blockade being lifted, stormed the castle with a thousand men. The Covenanters now controlled Edinburgh Castle, the premier fortification in Scotland, and they'd taken it in the course of an afternoon. This was not the only success the Covenanters enjoyed. 
Dalkeith Castle, just to the south of Edinburgh, was captured by Lord Rothers. Dalkeith held the main royal arsenal in Scotland, and the Scottish crown jewels, so this was both a military and propaganda victory. Dumbarton on the west coast was quickly seized also, blocking easy royalist reinforcements from Ireland. The royalist Marquess of Huntley, George Gordon, was raising troops in the northeast, and so Leslie, with the Marquess of Montrose, James Graham, in nominal command, led a force of several thousand to subdue him. Huntley came close to a fight with a Covenant force at Turriff, but withdrew due to not having specific orders from the king to be the aggressor. Aberdeen was occupied without bloodshed, and the city was relatively well treated. The Covenanters had among their number several notables from the region, including the Earl Marshal, whose seat at Donata was just to the south of the city. Together they negotiated with Huntley and the city council. A suspected assassin was caught within the city, and it was thought his target was Leslie. This was another propaganda win for the Covenanters, and it secured the loyalty of Leslie's troops even more. Throughout all of this, Montrose chafed at Leslie bridling his ambition. For now, he accepted Leslie's authority, but Montrose was not happy with this arrangement. Possibly after an argument during a negotiation with Huntley, Leslie left the city on the 12th of April, leaving Montrose and the Earl Marshal, William Keith, to continue negotiations. After all, this was just housekeeping, albeit important housekeeping. But with Charles mustering forces south of the border, everyone knew it was the Middle Shires where this would be settled. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis, and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now and can you guess the twist? This may be a good time to bring up another of the misconceptions about the First Bishops' War. This was not a war between English and Scots. English and Royalists and Scots and Covenanters are often conflated. Of course, the Covenanters controlled the government of Scotland, and the King controlled the government of England, and so in that sense it is an Anglo-Scottish war. However, many Scots were Royalists, and many English sympathised with the Covenanters. The Covenanters were only one faction of Scottish politics, and one which will soon fracture into its own factions. Signatories of the Covenant did not do so for the same reasons. Some regretted their decision to sign, others had been intimidated into doing so. Many chose their stance based on local politics, and saw the burgeoning political crisis as a vehicle for their advancement or the humbling of a rival. 
and as the Wars of the Three Kingdoms develop, plenty will switch sides. So while I may fall back on calling the Royalists English or the Covenanters Scots, keep these vagaries of allegiance in mind. So we've seen how the Covenanters were preparing for Charles to attack, but what was the King's plan? It was complicated. After mustering at York in March, it was decided that the Royalists would execute a three-pronged invasion, with two of those prongs being by sea. Charles would lead the bulk of the force of 24,000 infantry and 6,000 cavalry on an initial thrust north from York to besiege Edinburgh. The Marquess of Hamilton would lead a force of 5,000 men by sea. The Earl of Antrim, Randall MacDonald, who held influence on both sides of the North Channel, would invade the west coast with 5,000 men and fight his family's hereditary rival, the Campbells, led by the Earl of Argyll. It was also hoped that royalist elements in the Highlands and the Northeast, under the Marquess of Huntley, would rise up against the Covenanters, and just like that, the rebels would be surrounded and crushed. That was the plan. It had many moving parts, and so it had equally many ways to go wrong. Firstly, Charles never raised anywhere near the 30,000 soldiers he'd planned for. He got, at most, 15,000, and many of them were poorly armed and barely trained. Charles had tried to borrow troops from both Spain and the Netherlands, though both said no. The amphibious assaults did not go to plan either. The Earl of Antrim did manage to raise his required army. He called on many leading Gaelic-Irish families in Ulster, including the O'Neills and the McMahons. Lord Deputy Wentworth described it as, quote, as many O's and Macs as would startle a whole council board, adding that they were, in a great part, the sons of habituated traitors. Yet even after mustering this force, mostly Catholics and led by a Catholic, it never sailed. Dumbarton Castle had fallen to the Covenanters, and so deprived the expedition of its intended port. Antrim also struggled with local factors. Wentworth had dragged his feet over the affair, correctly saying that Antrim was purely looking out for his own gain, and Charles was hardly providing firm and decisive leadership. Yet that doesn't mean the Antrim expedition, or Charles's efforts to secure Spanish aid, had no results. On the contrary, they were political disasters. Charles had just tried to use Catholic armies, led by Catholics, to suppress his Protestant subjects. This only hardened the beliefs of his critics that he was a secret Catholic or intended to restore the Church of Rome in his kingdoms. It would have repercussions, as we will see in the future. On the other side of the kingdom, Hamilton's naval invasion went slightly better. He at least managed to set sail. He reached the still-blockaded Firth of Forth, with the intent to land most of their force at Edinburgh's port of Leith. However, the Marquess of Hamilton found an old friend waiting for him, Alexander Diasandi Hamilton, his former general of artillery when they'd both been in Swedish service. Diasandi, which is how I'll refer to him because there's already too many Hamiltons, was a savant with artillery. He had helped with, and maybe led, innovations in heavy and light artillery pieces while in Swedish service, and he'd been set to work fortifying Leith in the continental, Trace Italian style, complete with defensive cannons and rockets. 
This was an intimidating sight for Hamilton to see. What was perhaps even more intimidating was the sight of his mother. Patrons of the rank of Earl and above have a bonus episode on the life of the Marquess of Hamilton in their ad-free feeds. In that episode, I talked a bit about Hamilton's mother, Anna Cunningham, who stayed in Scotland and managed the Marquess's estates in his absence. I mentioned that the Dowager Marchioness was a devoted Presbyterian. What I didn't mention is that she was also a voluntary and very willing signatory of the National Covenant, and was now a colonel in the Covenanter Army. Colonel Dowager Marchioness Hamilton, pistol in hand, publicly threatened to shoot her own son dead if he tried to land and oppose the Covenant. Now, whether Hamilton was put off by the advanced defences with its heavy artillery and explosive rockets, or dear mum brandishing a snap ants, he withdrew. Murdoch and Grosjean propose that Hamilton still held out the hope that this could all be resolved through dialogue, and in this case, this dialogue would go better if, first, no blood had been shed, and second, if several thousand royalist troops weren't lying dead on the beaches of the Firth. A second flotilla, led by Huntley's son, the Viscount of Boyne, did succeed in landing in Aberdeen in June. We'll cover that shortly. On the 9th of May, Alexander Leslie officially became the Lord General of all Covenanter forces. He was granted the powers to recruit men and select officers, to command them as he saw fit, and to do everything necessary, quote, for the defence of the Covenant, for religion, crown, and country. While he was officially answerable to the civilian government, he had the authority to sanction anyone, quote, whatsoever rank, quality, or degree, who shall not do his duty, end quote. Stevenson, in his biography of Leslie, makes a point about this particular part of his remit. Even within the unified covenant of faction, personal grudges and family rivalries were endemic. Leslie was of Clan Leslie, but he was a bastard to relatively obscure parents and had been raised in fosterage with the Campbells. For almost all of his adult life, he'd been in service abroad. He had his connections and his relatives, of course, but he was not part of a faction. He was not burdened with accumulated grudges and had the personal prestige to make him acceptable to most of the Scottish nobility. Now led by Lord General Leslie, the Covenant of Forces mustered at Leith and were organised into divisions recognisable to any Gustavian officer. Once the Council of War guaranteed adequate supplies for the army, Leslie marched south, with perhaps 16,500 men. His aim was not invasion. He had no wish to become the aggressor, especially since he knew that English public opinion would be vital to any resolution to the crisis. He wished to overawe the king with a display of military might, while Hamilton was still bobbing away somewhere in the North Sea with 5,000 men. As part of this objective, Leslie sent his barber, an Englishman, to the Royalist camp at Newcastle. Charles had led the smaller-than-hoped force north, and had now heard that the other prongs of the invasion had failed. Leslie's barber described his employer's host as 20,000 strong. This was met with scepticism from the Royalists. England, richer and more populous by far, hadn't managed to levy as many as that. 
However, Leslie did what he could to reinforce that rumour. When the Earl of Holland, leading an English vanguard, caught sight of Leslie's army near the border town of Kelso on the 4th of June, the Lord General arranged his infantry in a shallow formation and had them hold extra standards. Holland, thoroughly convinced that the Covenanters vastly outnumbered his own force, retreated and reported what he'd seen. The next day, Leslie camped at Dunn's Law in the borders, and readied his men for battle. This was, hopefully, just for show, but Leslie was a professional. He hoped to avoid bloodshed, but he was ready for it nonetheless. The Army of the Covenant formed up along the River Tweed, facing the King's army led by the Earl of Northampton, Spencer Compton, on the opposite bank. Leslie continued his psychological strategy. He invited the Royalist officers to dinner. Not only was Leslie a consummate host, whose charm and soldierly virtues struck a chord with the Royalists, but the Lord General then led his guests on a tour of his camp. They could see for themselves the numbers of soldiers he had, their discipline, and their preparedness for battle. Leslie also made sure that the Royalists got a good look at a thousand or so Highlanders in full battle dress. After this, Leslie bid farewell to his guests, and the next day, his guests bid farewell to Leslie, retreating without an engagement. Charles was informed about the apparent strength of the Covenanters and their willingness to fight. The other prongs of his invasion had failed, though fortunately without much bloodshed. The exceptions were in the northeast. In May, Royalist forces formerly commanded by Huntley had expelled Covenanters from the town of Turriff, with one casualty, reoccupying Aberdeen before withdrawing once Montrose advanced on them. The other exception is that force led by Viscount Aboyne, Huntley's son. Aboyne had landed in Aberdeen in June, and then marched on Stonehaven, a village just to the south. Again, Royalist forces retreated in the face of Covenanter opposition, this time led by the Earl Marshal, William Keith. Aberdeen has come up in our narrative before, and will do again, so let's briefly discuss its geography. Modern Aberdeen is situated over the estuaries of two rivers, the southern River Dee and the northern River Don, with both emptying into the North Sea. Old Aberdeen was centred around the Don, hence its Pictish name, Aberdon, the mouth of the Don. To reach Aberdeen from the south, an army would have to cross the River Dee at the Bridge of Dee, or the Brig of Dee. The stone bridge spanned the river with seven arches, with a gatehouse on the southern bank. So when Aboyne retreated back to Aberdeen, his men reinforced the gatehouse with earth and stone, and conveniently, recent rain had swelled the width of the Dee. Around a hundred musketeers guarded the bridge, with a force of cavalry twice their number in support. A small defensive force at a choke point like this could hold back an enemy force many times its size. It was military tactics 101. The Earl Marshal had chased him to the bridge, but did not have the numbers to force the issue. The Earl Marshal was joined by the Earl of Montrose on the 18th of June, 1639. When Montrose reached the bridge with over 2,000 men, he looked at the fortified musketeers in their choke point. Was this going to be a defence akin to Thermopylae or Stirling Bridge? No, because neither Xerxes nor the Earl of Surrey had cannons. 
Montrose ordered his two demi-cannon to positions on high ground above the bridge, together with his lighter field pieces, and ordered a Boyne's position bombarded for an entire day. The Royalists withstood the artillery. The hastily built earthen embankments did the job, and the cannon fire caused little damage. Besides which, much of the artillery missed the bridge entirely. The Royalist-leaning townsfolk alternated between spectating the battle and bringing water to the defenders, leading to one Abaddonian being shot in the head in the crossfire. Overnight, in the cover of darkness, Montrose ordered the cannons to get closer, and when they began firing the next day, now they were hitting the bridge more than they didn't. But the defenders held firm. So Montrose hatched a cunning plan. He quite openly climbed onto his horse and led his cavalry westward, as if seeking somewhere to ford the river. This was unlikely, the river was flooded and was otherwise very wide. But Montrose wasn't trying to ford the river. He was baiting a boyne. The young Viscount, against the advice of his officers, trailed Montrose with his own cavalry on the other side of the Dee. Once the two horse contingents were far enough away, the numerically superior Covenanter infantry stormed the bridge. Now without the support of their cavalry or their commander, and with artillery fire now taking its toll on the defenders, the remaining officers called a retreat. The Royalists withdrew from Aberdeen, and Scotland's third city was once again occupied by the Covenanters. Some of Montrose's subordinates urged him to burn the city to the ground. It had repeatedly proven resistant to Covenanter rule. However, Montrose was relatively lenient. 48 Royalists were arrested and imprisoned in the Tollbooth Jail, with only the clothes on their backs. The city was fined £4,000, a tidy sum, but far less than the price paid if the Earl allowed his troops free reign. Even restrained, the three-day occupation caused more than £133,000 of damage. It was while returning south that news from the border reached Montrose. After deciding that discretion was the better part of valour, Charles's officers returned from the confrontation at Dunn's Law and reported to the king what they'd seen. And what had they seen? A large, well-disciplined, and motivated army of Covenanters led by experienced officers and commanded by Lord General Leslie. At this point, Aboyne was still marching around the northeast, but Charles was convinced by his officers that they could not win a battle against the Lord General right now. Instead, the king should come to terms with the Covenanters. Next time, we will look at these terms. The pacification of Berwick, as the treaty was called, solved none of the causes of the First Bishop's War. After all, this was just the First Bishop's War. We will cover how a humiliated and impoverished Charles was forced to do what he really, really didn't want to do, and how the Covenanters prepared for the inevitable. Thank you to my royal favourites, Andrew Shoemaker and Mike Sanders. To the Duchess of Devon, Michelle Gersich. To the royal headsman, executed today. The Duke of Clarence, Rory Martin. And the Duke of Armand, Brendan Bonner. They are joined in the House of Lords by the Earl of Salisbury, Bruno Ekman, and Peter, Baron Moldave. Remember that you can join their ranks by going to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica. Every patron gets an ad-free feed, and patrons of higher ranks get extra bonuses. Please consider leaving a review on iTunes or your favourite podcast app, or sharing it with a friend or on social media. Remember, you can follow me on Twitter and Facebook, the links are in the episode description, 
Thank you as always to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music used in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.